Today's reading is from the book of Colossians. You can find it on page 1182 in your Bibles. That's 1182. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that, come, that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is faithful, minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Thank you very much for reading, Mike. Thank you, Ben, for your prayer as we start this series um, in Colossians. Um, You're not supposed to have favorite children, and I don't, but I wonder whether you're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. Is that okay? Mm, Kind of, maybe. Um, Of the 66 books of the Bible, each of them has a distinctive emphasis and focus and feel, and we turn to them for different reasons. Um, But they're each, of course, designed to feed us spiritually and to help us in our walk as Christians. Each of us takes us deeper into that Christian experience and life. All Scripture, after all, is God-breathed, and all is useful, we're told, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But each works, perhaps in a unique way, bringing a different angle, a different take, a different insight unlocking a biblical truth that we really need. So, you know, the book of Romans, just think how God has used that down the centuries as people have discovered the free grace of the gospel, that we are made right with God, not by ourselves and our own human effort, but by grace as a gift from God and the impact that it had on Augustine or Luther or the Wesley brothers. Romans is so central, isn't it, to growing as a Christian? Or the book of Hebrews, which really unlocks the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, just gives us a sense of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises 
of the Old Testament. The Psalms, as we've seen in these last few weeks, just help prepare us for every season of the soul, what life can be like, even if we're not there at that given moment. We know there's somewhere we can turn for comfort, for help, for wisdom, for perspective. Well, what about Colossians? Well, I think Colossians, more than any other book in the Bible, gives us Christ in all his glory. We're helped when we see his supremacy to understand his sufficiency. That Christ is everything. His supremacy, we'll see this a little more next week, helps us to understand his sufficiency for every day of our Christian life. So here's what I hope we'll see and understand and take to heart. Once we really see who Jesus is, we'll see he's all we ever need. You know, there are nice things in life. Everyone has his or her bucket list of things that they'd like to do or love to do. But Paul wants from this letter to show us good gifts from God as they might be if we have Jesus, if we are in Christ, we have all we need. And the key verses for the whole book that kind of unlock where Paul is going to take us is chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. They should appear on the screen. I'll read them for us. This is what Paul says to this young church in Colossae who have started really well. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See, Paul, as we already saw in the verses that Mike read in chapter 1, Paul is already full of praise and thanksgiving to God for this new group of believers in this small town of Colossae in western Turkey. And his message to a church is to a church he's not actually met yet. He doesn't know these Christians in Colossae, but he's heard about them and the faith that they have And his message as an apostle of Christ Jesus to them is you've started really well. Now, please keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off him for a moment. For in him, you have everything. One of the problems is that even those who know and love Jesus can have a hard time believing in the day-to-dayness of life, that Jesus is all I need. You know that feeling? Maybe right now you're thinking, well, what I really need is a change, a change of circumstance, a new job, a new look, new designer glasses, a new phone, I don't know. We try to satisfy the longings of our heart outside of Jesus. But listen to Paul's own words from Philippians chapter 4. And verse 11. And Paul says here in Philippians, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, I'm reassured by that word learned, aren't you? He didn't say I I had that from the get-go as a Christian. But he said, you know what? I've learned that my contentment, my joy, does not lie in a change of circumstances, but in the reality of my faith. I've learned to be content. That is something, isn't it? 
to be at peace with ourselves, quite independent of our circumstances, so that we can say no thank you to whatever the world wants to tempt us with. The journalist Michael Murgo once reflected on New York Fashion Week, and he described what he saw there in that week of events. He described it as really humanity's modern condition, and he described it as a nagging feeling of soullessness. A nagging feeling of soullessness. And Tim Keller describes the main uh, symptom like this. He says, soullessness is when I'm looking really pulled together on the outside. And I mean, those on a fashion week, no one tops their appearance. Really pulled together on the outside, but inside, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I believe. I don't really know what I'm living for, and surely I don't have anything to die for. My outside is much greater than my inside. That's the modern human condition, isn't it? Good on the outside, hollow on the inside. But Paul is the exact opposite. He can say, verse 12, I know what it is, Philippians, I know what it is to be in need, to have nothing, and I know what it is to have plenty, lots of things. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Do you see? In Jesus, the cure for that soullessness has been met, and he's full on the inside, and the things of the outside well, they can come and go. They're nice things. They're not bad. A nice holiday is a good thing. Rejoicing when your football team wins or you buy a new set of uh, clothes, whatever it might be, they're not bad things, but they cannot fill us as Jesus can. So maybe some of us are the kind of people who are saying, if I'm honest, Neil, I do believe the gospel I do believe the things that we've sung and heard and shared today. But I still sometimes find myself wanting more and wondering where that will come from. And that's the battle in the Christian heart, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceitful philosophies that are outside of Christ. We can, even as Christians, find that our souls are not really satisfied in him. And Colossians is going to help us with this battle. When we're not sure Jesus is enough, when we're wondering if there's more, what we really need to understand is, I need to find a deeper, more fulfilling knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. I don't know whether you've ever bought uh, some kind of electronic gadget, maybe a computer or phone or something, and you're quite aware that you haven't really got the measure of it. You're quick to unbox it, you get it up and running, you're happily using it, but then someone else, perhaps you know your 13-year-old son, uh, comes along and says, oh, have you tried doing this? Or you should just press that button there. And you say, I had no idea you could even do that. Uh, Dad, you need to do this. Do that, and then click a button, and they show you another feature and offer you another tip. And after a few moments, you think to yourself, 
this little device does so much more than I'd ever realize. I need someone to show me how to use it. Well, Paul is going to show us how to grow in Christ. Paul is going to say he is so much bigger than you ever imagined. And all of the resources you need for life are in him. He's like an infinite well where the water never runs out. Or as Jesus himself put it in John's gospel, the springs of living water that come from him are available to us. And so in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is already praying for them in verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. There's more to Jesus than you already know. Christian, as you grow in that knowledge, verse 10, you may then live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So you see, when you tell yourself, maybe I need something else, you realize there's going to be a hole for the rest of your life here on earth. There's going to be a whole load of people saying the same to you. Every time you turn on the TV or scroll through your Twitter feed, whatever else it might be, ping, 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 message, message, message. There's something you need that you don't have. And after all, aren't advertisers there? Isn't it their purpose to manufacture desires in your own heart and hungers and wants that you didn't even know you had? And then they link and attach them to the products that they're selling. That's the way of the world. And you and I are not immune from it, and neither were these Christians living here in Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive. So let's go back to the beginning. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, this thanksgiving and prayer. Remember, Paul has never met these Christians. We read verse 7 that it was a man called Epaphras who brought them Jesus' message. And Colossae is about 80 miles from Ephesus, which was really the hub city for that whole region. And Paul was in Ephesus for two years, church planting and telling everyone who came and went through that great city of Jesus. And Epaphras, perhaps, was a businessman, was a traveler, happened to find himself there, heard the message of Jesus from Paul, came to faith, and took it back with him to his hometown of Colossae preached the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the whole truth of Jesus to them, and they became believers. So Paul hasn't met them, but from Epaphras, he's heard all about them and their changed lives, the fruits of this message. And so this letter starts, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, unlike when you're watching Netflix, it is best not to skip the introductions when you're reading Paul's letters. If it's an apostle writing an introduction, stick with it and learn from it, because even here in verse 2 is our very first clue to why Christianity may be bigger and better than you'd imagined. How is it that as Christians we have it all? Well, verse 2 
Paul says, if you're a Christian, you are someone in Christ. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? In Christ. So a Christian is not someone who goes to church. It's not someone who even believes certain things. A Christian is someone, verse 2, who is in Christ. Not into Christ, in that they quite like him, but in Christ, in that they are joined to him. The message of Christianity begins with the, no, the knowledge that when we come to believe in Jesus, we are united to him. Now, what does that even mean? Well, the only really human example that we have of that is a marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, a man leaves his mother and a father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So like one person, inseparable from now on. One flesh. The two become one. And of course, Paul is going to develop this in the letter of Ephesians to say the mystery that's there in Genesis 2 is actually that Jesus and the church are one. Martin Luther famously described all that it means to be a Christian by using this illustration of a marriage. His illustration is about a king who marries a prostitute. And because the king sets his love upon an undeserving and immoral person, because the king chooses to marry her in an instant, in the exchange of vows, her identity and her destiny changes forever. Do you see that in a marriage? Her identity and her destiny change forever. She felt the same person. She was the same person. But forever now, she's defined by the relationship she has with her husband. All that was his, including his title, is now hers. And her disgrace is taken away by him. And she's royalty. She's a queen now. She hasn't earned it. She didn't deserve it. She doesn't have to work for it to keep it. It can never be taken away. Quite simply, to be in Christ means that from the moment you accept him as Savior and Lord, all that is his immediately is yours. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but in a way that is true and secure and can never be taken away from you. So to go deeper into the gospel for you today might simply be to understand, well, I'd never really thought about this idea in Christ before. I just thought a Christian was someone who believes in Jesus. But actually, it's bigger, isn't it? It's someone who is so joined to Jesus that my identity and my destiny is totally wrapped up in him. So much so that you can even say this as a Christian, what is true of Jesus is now true of me. Now look, if you think, what does that mean? Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, because Paul's going to unpack this and we'll return to this later. But look at exactly what this means. What is true of Jesus is true of me. Chapter 3, verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. You are so joined to Jesus that where he is, you're already there. There's a sense in which you're already in glory with Jesus because your union with him can't be broken. And where he is, you are. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. 
set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. What do you mean I died? Well, Jesus died, didn't he? And you're in Jesus. So when Jesus died, you died in him. And your life now, Christian, is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, that's a big, that's a big idea to get your head around on a Sunday morning. And we'll come back to it and we'll reflect on these things. But your identity and your destiny is so wrapped up with Jesus because you're in Christ that what is true of him is true of you. How could you need anything more if you're already seated at the right hand of God? How could you ever need anything more? What access to God could someone offer you that you don't already have? What status, what title, what privilege, what future could someone offer you? No salesman could knock the door and entice you with anything that you don't already have. If chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 are full, you just say, no, thank you, no, thank you, I don't need that, I've already, thank you very much. I've got everything, more than everything, more than I can even imagine in Jesus. I don't need the soulless offers that you're making to me. Your, your life is in Christ. So how do you recognize those who are in Christ, verses 3 to 8? How do you spot a genuine Christian? Remember, Paul's not met them. He doesn't know them, but he's heard things from Epaphras. What has he heard about them that has so convinced him, yeah, these guys have really got it. God is at work in them, and he's brought them to Jesus, and I can tell because I see these certain things. What is it that he sees? Well, he tells us in verses 4 and 5 the three hallmarks of genuine believer. Faith, love, and hope. And Paul uses this triad very often in his writings. He says, these seem to be the distinctives of a Christian. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4, and of your love for all God's people, verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. Now, why in becoming a Christian do those things just happen? Why? Well, because in becoming a Christian, you're not just getting religious or deciding to go to church. In becoming a Christian, you have this new identity, this new reality, this new future to look forward to that can never be taken from you because, because you're already at the, at the right hand of God in Christ. So do you see what he says in verse 5? He says, look, it's a living hope that empowers the Christian life. That's the fuel for the engine, verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. That's what gets you going as a Christian, to be so sure that you have a future that is certain and glorious. Do you know that, Christian? A future that is certain and glorious compared to any other experience that you've possibly had in this life? Your first day in heaven will be better than your best day here on earth. Guarantee you that. That's my promise to you. 
Your hope is that good and that glorious. It will trump any day that you've ever lived on this earth by a million miles. So if that's living in you, if that's your destiny and your future, then that will grow your faith and your love because when you go through all the ups and downs in life, you'll cling to Jesus. It will grow your faith. You'll cling to him. You say, I don't have any answers. I don't understand what's going on. Lord, why would you let this to ha- happen to me? But I'm going to hold on to you because my future is glorious and certain. And it will increase not just your faith, but your love for other Christians because you'll start to think of yourself in relation to other people who share that hope, who you know will share eternity with you. And you're rooting for each other and helping each other all the way till you get to heaven. Faith love and hope are the hallmarks of biblical Christianity, of spirit-filled believers, because it all comes out of your new identity in Jesus. See, there are messages that provoke instant reactions, aren't there? My parents are old enough to remember something like this. The war is over. I mean, that provokes an instant response, doesn't it? How about, congratulations, you've passed. Or, it's a girl. You know, these things just, you know, they just come inside, they well up inside of us instantly because of a truth that has broken into our hearts and captured our imaginations and changed our future forever. Well, that's what it is when you become a Christian. You don't just believe things about God. You know that you have a future that is certain and glorious and bang, that begins to turn you around from the inside out. Is that your understanding of Christianity this morning? Do you have a living hope of a certain future? I think I went to church for quite a few years before I could have said that was true of me. For a while I would have said, I, I think I believe in God, and I'm not quite sure why Good Friday was a Good Friday, but you know, I, 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 I do believe in God, but I had no knowledge of Christ as my Savior. I couldn't have said the things here in verses 12 to 14 that we had read a few minutes ago, that that actually we can give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in his inheritance. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I, I didn't know those things. And then God opened my eyes to see and understand them, and I believed them, and that hope was real, and that fuel powered and continues to power the Christian life. It changes everything. A living hope. So how about if you want to grow in that hope, how about this week, each morning, saying to yourself, just do it for a week, each morning, this week, say, one day soon... When Christ, who is my life, appears, I will appear with him in glory. That's just verse 4 of chapter 3 that we read a moment or two ago. Why not reflect on that verse each morning, this one day soon? It could be today. It could be tomorrow. I don't know. One day soon when Christ, who is my life, appears, I will appear with him in glory. And that will give me hope and it will give me perspective and it will give me courage and it will give me confidence and it will help me through the hardships of life one day soon i will be with him
And that's a living hope that will grow your faith and your love. And wherever you meet Christians, verse 6, the gospel bears fruit in this way. Because Christianity isn't religion. It's a statement that you're in Christ. So everyone who's a believer in Jesus, wherever you meet them around the world, knows this truth and shares in your faith and your love and your hope. And Paul can say the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And he rejoices that they're part of this story of what God is doing. And then just briefly at the end, you'll notice in verses 9 to 12, Paul, having thanked the Lord for them, now turns to pray for them in verses 9 to 12. And he's going to show us how you can pray for those who are in Christ. Now, here's a thought for us. Paul is praying for Christians he doesn't know. Do you find yourself doing that sometimes? Come to a prayer meeting here, or you just hear some news about a war that's going on somewhere else, and you think about persecuted Christians. How, how do I pray for people I don't know? Well, Paul shows us in these verses there are lots of things you can pray for people you don't know. You don't have to know someone's circumstances before you know how to pray for them. And know this, would you, from verses 9, that Christians you've never met really are sustained by your prayers. You don't know them. They don't know, have to know that you're praying for them. Only God needs to know. Okay, look at verse 9. He's never met them. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to dot, dot, dot. So you don't have to know them. They don't have to know you. Many people have prayed for you and are praying today. They're praying for Christ Church Mayfair. Around the world, people are praying for this church today. That means they're praying for you. They don't even know you. But their prayers are sustaining your faith in a way that you and I can't really fully explain or understand. But Paul says, I heard about your faith and I've never stopped praying for you ever since. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You'll meet people in heaven who say, yeah, I pray for your church. Or I knew your grandfather and I prayed for your mother and I heard about you and prayed for you and you'll never know until one day you realize, wow, that person's prayer sustain me so you can pray for a ccm mission partner you don't need to know them but your prayers will sustain them in their work you can pray for persecuted christians in china and you don't need to know them but your prayers can be taken by god and used to keep them going and loving jesus paul didn't just say we heard you'd become christians and we're really chuffed he says no we heard you become christians and so we couldn't stop praying for you it's a wonderful thing. You don't need to know people to pray for them, and you don't need to know people to know how to pray for them, because Paul's going to give us some wonderful things to pray for people we've never met. Here's what we could pray. Look at verse uh, 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Lord, would you make Jesus more real to that church pastor imprisoned in country X, would they feel and sense the love of Christ for them today, even as they suffer in prison for him? You don't, need to, you don't need to know anything about what it's like to ask Jesus would be more real to them. 
we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. And then we do these things because, well, here's four subcategories of things you hope the knowledge of that will will produce. Verse 10, that they'd live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way. And then he says, here's four ways in which that might work itself out. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power so that they might have endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified them. So we have the Lord's Prayer. It's a wonderful thing to pray for ourselves and one another. We also have Paul's prayers, which give us ways to pray for Christians we don't know. That actually God might really work the gospel into their hearts and lives, that they might bear fruit, grow in the knowledge, be strengthened, and give joyful thanks to God. So Christian, in Christ... You have everything. You have it all. He has qualified you. He has rescued you. He has redeemed you. And so we pray that that knowledge would inspire and empower us to live for the one who has done all this for us. Let's pray together. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Thank you, Lord, that you have done that this morning through this word. Thank you that because we are in Christ, we have a future that is certain and glorious, and there is nothing that we shall ever need because we are already in him. And would that knowledge of your will lead us to live lives worthy of you in every way? Amen.